Welcome to episode four of Coaster Redux. My name is Eric and I'm a lifelong roller coaster enthusiast, but up until lately I've been kind of a lazy one. Through high school and college in the late 90s and early 2000s, I was a full-on coaster nerd. Then I entered the working world and I went on a lengthy hiatus, only attending parks every few years. During the pandemic, I returned to following the amusement industry more closely through podcasts and social media. When the parks reopened, I rode some of the new attractions that debuted in my home state of Florida, and my enthusiast flame is now fully reignited. Around the turn of the millennium, I lived in the Boston area, at that time home to two of the best roller coasters in the world, Superman Ride of Steel at Six Flags New England and Boulder Dash at Lake Compounds. After my most recent trips around Florida, I feel the same way again. Not only do we have some of the world's best family theme parks in our state, but we have a stellar collection of high-thrill roller coasters, headlined by the new Velocicoaster at Islands of Adventure and Iron Gwazi at Busch Gardens, Tampa. Now it's time to leave my bubble and hit the road to see how my new top two stand up against some of the best rides in the country. I've never done anything like this before, but it's time to get back out there. This is the story of my revived roller coaster fandom, and I'm finally embarking on my epic week-long road trip that was the inspiration for starting this podcast. I'm going to visit four incredible parks with some of the most elite rides on the planet. Carowinds, Cedar Point, Kings Island, and Dollywood. I know as a roller coaster fan that one of my favorite parts of the hobby is getting the reaction of somebody coming off a ride they've never ridden before. That's what I want to share with you. And with that, let's go in-depth on my first ever visit to Carowinds as we drop into Episode 4 of Coaster Redux. I can't believe it, but it's finally here. I haven't had a real vacation in years because of the pandemic, and I'm so excited to finally visit some new parks. My bags are packed, my hotels are booked, my park pass is bought, and there's nothing left to do but hit the road. Day one would be a travel day, and I would clock up nearly 700 miles on the road between South Florida and Charlotte, North Carolina. The bummer about living in South Florida is just how long it takes to get out of the state, five and a half hours to the Georgia line. When I was mapping out this trip, I was surprised by how once you finally get outside of Florida, it's pretty easy to connect the dots and drive between so many amusement parks. If this goes well, I'll be doing a whole lot more trips just like it. As I approached St. Augustine on I-95, I kept passing signs for Bucky's, a famous truck stop, and decided to pull in for lunch. It's a massive emporium filled with anything a traveler could need, and the people watching rivals the best days at your local Walmart. They have killer fresh-made barbecue sandwiches, so I grabbed a pulled pork and continued on my way. As I left the state of Florida, I thought to myself that Six Flags Over Georgia is just another few hours further north. I've heard great things about that park, but decided to postpone my first ever visit there because Airy Force One, a wild-looking ground-up RMC, is under construction at nearby Fun Spot Atlanta. I figured those two parks would make for a perfect long weekend trip during the winter months when other parks are closed. As the hours and miles ticked by uneventfully, I was thinking about the day to come. I had the chance to go to Carowinds back in 2018 when I visited my brother in North Carolina. We decided to go to King's Dominion instead, choosing their Intamin Giga Intimidator 305 and their newly opened RMC Twisted Timbers over the B&Ms at Carowinds. With those two coasters now under my belt, I wanted to experience Fury 325, widely considered the top Giga coaster in the world. 
Carowinds also debuted Copperhead Strike, a mock multi-launch coaster in 2019, and I had never ridden anything like that. The park's final two headliners are Intimidator, a B&M Hyper, and Afterburn, a B&M Invert. This was going to be a great way to set the tone for the trip, and I was so ready to check out a new park. I caught my first glimpse of Carowinds at about 7pm as I approached my hotel. Those red parabolic airtime hills on Intimidator were right there, so was the tallest lift hill in the world on Fury 325. When I got out of my car in the hotel parking lot, I could hear the screams and the B&M roar from Afterburn. The park was open for a few more hours, and I was tempted to pop in for a few quick rides. I had my season pass, so it wouldn't have cost any more money, but I was tired and hungry from the long drive, and I had the entire next day to spend in the park. Pace yourself, Eric. You've got a long road ahead. My hotel for the next two nights was a Marriott Town Place Suites. It was essentially brand new and cost just over $100 a night. Every room had a full kitchen, and they had a pool and a continental breakfast. I would highly recommend this property to anyone visiting Carowinds. So, I settled in for the night and pulled up my coaster count. I'm sitting at 93, and I wanted Fury 325 to be my 100th roller coaster, so I would have to ride six other coasters before taking on the park's star attraction. This was going to be tough. The next morning, I grabbed a quick coffee at the hotel and drove across the street to the park. The Cedar Fair Platinum Pass includes parking and admission throughout the chain, and it was so easy to use. My pass was linked to the Carowinds app on my phone, so all I had to do was hold it out for the parking attendant to scan, and I was in. To the right, Fury's record-breaking lift hill seems to touch the sky, and to the left, the red undulations of Intimidator rise and fall to the horizon. Over the next five days, I would be visiting three parks, each one featuring a 200-plus-foot hypercoaster and a 300-plus-foot giga. How cool is that? No more time to think. I'm here. Let's do this. The park had opened only a few minutes ago, and trains were already flying through Fury's course, which winds over and under the park's entrance. I paused for a second to watch the ride absolutely haul through its low-to-the-ground bag turns, then rocket up into Fury's iconic treble cleft turnaround and plummet beneath the pedestrian bridge leading to the gate. The Jurassic Park theme was playing as I walked towards the entrance. Pretty sure this isn't universal, but it sets the mood just fine. Then it was time to go through security and enter the park. The lines looked long. I had heard stories from last season about abysmal operations coming out of the pandemic as parks struggled to hire and maintain employees. Was this going to be the norm over the coming week? I sure hope not. Plus, this was Father's Day Sunday, sure to be a busy day. Hopefully I can get on everything. The security line moved quickly enough, and I finally stepped into the park. Welcome to Carowinds, where the Carolinas come together. It's a catchy slogan that fits so well because the park straddles North and South Carolina, and the border is paved right into the midway. The park seems to have a bouquet of roller coasters at its center, including Nighthawk, a Vacoma Flying Dutchman, Vortex, a B&M stand-up, Kitty Hawk, a family inverted coaster, and Carolina Gold Rusher, an Arrow Mine Train. The pathways forming the park's main loop run outside those, then more roller coasters are sprinkled around the periphery. My mission was to ride six coasters before Fury, so I headed to the back of the park for my first ride of the day, Copperhead Strike. I was intrigued by this one. The newest coaster in the park, this tangled multi-launch coaster with burnt orange track is the only one of its kind in the United States. It features two launches and five inversions, including a JoJo roll, a Heartline roll taken at very low speed right out of the station. The coaster's entrance and queue is well-themed for Cedar Fair. The story is loose, but it has something to do with Granny's old farmhouse where she's known for making jam, but it's actually a cover for a moonshine operation. Signs around the property warn of snakes to ward off onlookers. The coaster's first launch takes place in the Moonshine Distillery, where you escape as a bootlegger. 
the beautiful trains resemble black 1920s-era trucks. Copperhead Strike has received a lot of hate from roller coaster enthusiasts. Many say it's forceless and uninteresting, and that the $26 million could have bought a lot more. But I love me a good launch coaster, especially one that blends airtime with inversions, so let's give it a shot. They were running three trains despite minimal weights. Attendants were assigning rows, and I landed in the back row for my first ride. The seats are mounted high and very comfortable. The trains feature lap bars that come down over the shoulders as well as seat belts. The ride ops were in training from a more senior employee who was calling out the location of the train running the track. It seemed like they were supposed to be at a certain point in the loading process while the other train was at a select location on the ride. All good? Here we go. Out of the station, you hang out of your seat through the JoJo roll. It's a neat yet forgettable gimmick. Then you pause in the moonshine shed before the first launch. You then accelerate moderately into a vertical loop. The ride crawls through this element. The hang time at the top is glorious. Then it flies into an airtime hill followed by a corkscrew. It twists and turns through a spaghetti bowl of track, then hits a second launch. You then head skyward again into the cutback, an inverted top hat which delivers even more ferocious hang time. Then it's a vertical loop and a strong airtime moment as the ride rises and banks hard through the first vertical loop. You twist and turn a few more times and then hit the brakes. Okay, that was pretty darn good. The hang time is outstanding and there are several strong airtime moments. The twisted track is fun and couldn't be smoother. Unfortunately, the launches on Copperhead Strike are not thrill elements, but merely serve to get the trains moving. I love me a good strong launch, and the ones on this ride are mediocre. Still, the rest of the coaster is no slouch. I don't think it deserves the hate. I'll give it to the coaster boys that the price tag was high for what it is. Hey, Fury 325 was only $4 million more, and it's way bigger. But I'll let the bean counters at Cedar Fair worry about that. This was a really fun roller coaster that perfectly bridges the gap between family and extreme. I'd place it halfway between Cheetah Hunt and Velocicoaster, a sweet spot for the general public. I took Copperhead Strike for another quick spin, then headed next door to Afterburn. This B&M invert originally opened as Top Gun the Jet Coaster when the park was owned by Paramount. It still looks the part, except Cedar Fair removed anything that might put them into copyright trouble. The station is still adorned with military block letters reading Fighter Town USA. There's a model F-14 Tomcat by the entrance. The coaster has that infamous B&M roar, and it's tucked away in the back corner of the park atop a hill. I actually had a difficult time finding the entrance. The ride zooms through trees, but it also interacts with the pathways. Shall we take it for a flight? There was a short wait, and I selected the back row. This coaster was running two trains, and the operators were turning and burning. Soon, I was headed up the lift hill looking out over the back parking lot. As Goose would say, let's kick the tires and light the fires. You careen down that first drop in the back row, then soar into a vertical loop, dive into a canyon, then head upside down again through an Immelman. Then it's a quick snap through a zero-g roll, and you twist through a batwing element in a trench similar to Montu. Tower, this is Ghost Rider requesting flyby. You rocket over the station in a quick bunny hill which unfortunately doesn't have any airtime, then whip into a corkscrew before turning into the brakes. This is a great B&M inverted coaster. It's pretty much a mini Montu. It's got a lot of the same elements, but they're taken in rapid succession with no mid-course breaks. I love the way it interacts with the terrain and dives through trenches. Florida's Egyptian god still reigns supreme for me, but this ride gives it a run for its money. Okay, four coasters to go before Fury. I'm in the back of the park, so let's just knock off some credits so I can finally go take the big plunge. Next up, Flying Cobras. This is another Vacoma boomerang. It was a walk-on. 
I was pleasantly surprised that this ride featured vest restraint, so even if it was rough, I wouldn't bang my head. I rode in the back, and I actually had fun on this ride. The first drop and positive Gs were pretty good, and it was far from the roughest coaster I've ever ridden. Boomerang credit? Check. Next up is the Carolina Cyclone, an old-school arrow double-loop double corkscrew model. This ride opened in 1980, and at that time it must have been the new hotness in the park. Freshly painted, it reminded me of Corkscrew at Cedar Point, with its final two inversions placed right over the midway. It was running two trains, and I walked on and just grabbed a seat in the middle. The first drop was pretty good, but that was it. I've heard of side-to-side headbanging on arrows, but this one featured a first for me. Between the two vertical loops, I got forwards and backwards headbanging, as the train buffeted frontwards and back. I survived the subsequent two corkscrews and walked off. Once was enough. My head needed a break, so I decided to hop on Carolina Gold Rusher right across the path. This is an aero mine train, and because it has a low height requirement, it's popular with families with younger children. I waited about 10 minutes and sat down in the train. I'm only 5'11", but this seat was really too small for me. My knees were right up against the back of the next seat. A dad sitting in front of me shared the same lament. We also waited forever in the station because there were kids who were not tall enough to ride accompanied by argumentative parents. Drama resolved, we were eventually off to take a family-friendly tour of the center of the park, with some helixes and shallow drops before returning to the station to wait way too long on the brakes to be able to free our knees from this penalty box. Okay, I've suffered enough. I only need one more coaster before I can ride Fury to make it my hundredth, so it's time for some more airtime. I made my way to the front of the park to ride Intimidator. Like I-305 at King's Dominion, this coaster is themed to NASCAR legend Dale Earnhardt. He was born right here in Charlotte, and with this city hosting the Coca-Cola 600, one of NASCAR's biggest races, this theme is perfect. The out-and-back hyper features seven airtime hills, and it has some unusual trains for B&M. Rather than having four across rows like most of their rides, Intimidator has staggered seating. Each car has two rows, and each row has two seats. The front row in each car has two seats next to each other in the center, while the back row has two seats outside on the wings with a large space in the middle. This makes the trains twice as long as most B&Ms. The ride is running three trains, and like Copperhead Strike, the attendants were calling out the location of the train on the course as if to cue where they should be in the loading process. If the third train was holding on the brake run, they would come on and say we've got a stacked situation, obviously to be avoided. This clear effort to keep the trains moving despite no line was hugely appreciated. I'm optimistic that operations will continue to shine through the rest of my trip. One strange thing I would find on these B&Ms was that we were instructed to board our rows and buckle the seatbelt only. They did not want us to lower our own lap bars. The attendants would come around and check the seatbelts and lower them for us. That was fine. I never got stapled or anything, so whatever makes the line move more quickly works for me. The ride ops announce, drivers, start your engines. The train leaves the station and heads straight into the 232-foot lift hill. The view from the top is stellar, but there's not much time to enjoy it. The back row gets yanked down 211 feet to the ground, then it's skyward again into a 90-degree turn to the right, followed by a trimmed airtime hill. Bummer there, but you still get floater on the descent. Then it's into a blue ribbon-shaped turnaround with two more airtime hills and a turn into the mid-course. Next, Intimidator banks into a 360-degree helix, and then there's one more airtime pop into the brakes. Intimidator is a fun ride that's an all-you-can-eat buffet of floater airtime. Because there was no wait at all, I jumped back in line and rode in the front. B&M has got this type of ride figured out. It's pure wind-in-your-face fun. It's big, impressive to look at, and delivers a thrilling ride while not being too much for the average guest. The airtime on this was not as strong as Mako at SeaWorld Orlando. Riding in the front, you get strong floater on the first half of each hill, and riding in the back, you get the same on the second half. 
I later came back and rode in the middle and got weak sustained floater through the whole hill. I think this is due to the longer train length. I don't think the staggered seating helps or hurts the experience of the ride, but I think a shorter train like most B&Ms would allow every row to get more consistent airtime. I've got plenty more of these coasters coming up on the rest of my trip, so we'll continue to test this theory. With six rides at Carowinds under my belt, I can proudly say I've ridden 99 different roller coasters. It's time to tackle my main reason for coming here. Fury 325 would be my second giga, and I was psyched for my 100th roller coaster. It's pretty much universally loved by coaster enthusiasts. It's known for a long, smooth ride with intense low-to-the-ground elements that emphasize pure speed. The color scheme really pops. Teal track with lime green on the back of the spine and white supports. It's loosely themed to a hornet, probably a nod to Charlotte's basketball team. Again, three trains are running, and I only had to wait about ten minutes to board. They were not assigning seats, and like the park's other major coasters, they were working hard to pump the trains out as quickly as possible. I hopped into the back row for my first ride. All clear. The train rolls forward and immediately engages the steep chain lift. It moves quickly uphill, and I'm fully reclined looking into the clear Carolina sky, just waiting for that 320-foot drop. This is it. The world's biggest B&M. The hype meter is pegged to the max. Getting close. Hands up. Here it comes. Time to fly. Down we go and, wow, that's a nasty rattle. As the train pulled out of that ferocious descent at 95 miles an hour, it was vibrating badly. This was unexpected. Then the ride heads upward into a bank-twisting turn before navigating two low 90-degree knife-edge turns across the entrance plaza. The next element is Fury 325's finest moment, the treble clef. You spiral upwards and while still banked at 90 degrees, plummet into a tunnel beneath the main entrance pathway that's illuminated with green LED hexagons. You then rocket up into another high bank turn, then soar into Fury's first airtime hill, and it's really great. Next up is a helix to the right, and there's a great hand chopper as the train gets close to one of the taller supports. Pretty much everybody puts their hands down in this moment. Fury then completes two more solid airtime hills, and we're into the brakes. Initial reactions? Mixed. Mind? Definitely not blown. That rattle is a real bummer. It didn't kill the ride, but I wasn't expecting it. The first drop is as great as expected, and the treble clef is the star of the show. It's a great whippy turnaround with some phenomenal airtime heading into the tunnel. I'm going to have to get a few more rides on this before I make a final judgment here. So I wanted to stew on Fury a bit before riding again, so I headed over to Vortex, a 1992 B&M stand-up. This was the model that started B&M's career. They initially worked for Intamin before breaking off to start their own company, and these stand-ups preceded all the other goodness they would go on to create. This was one of their earlier models, so it would be an interesting comparison after just getting off one of their latest and greatest creations. The ride-up in the control booth was hilarious. She kept telling us to bend our knees when boarding so the bicycle seats between our legs wouldn't be too high to hurt the guys on the ride. Then she said to be sure to keep our heads forward after the first loop because the ride gets bumpy. Words of wisdom heated, and yeah, this thing was rough. At one point, I'm sure it was something special because of the unique ride position and the computer-designed track work, but that's no longer the case one and done. While sitting on Fury's holding brake, I had watched the Hurler wood coaster run through the end of its course, and it looked shaky. I could see the trains bouncing up and down over warped wooden potholes during the final part of the ride. I thought about skipping it completely, but after I had ridden everything else I wanted to for the day, I decided to suck it up and get the credit. Walking into the queue for this coaster brought back memories of Twisted Timbers at King's Dominion, the RMC conversion of this coaster's twin. I walked right into the station and boarded the first available row. Fortunately, the PTC trains are well padded. I settled in and we rolled out of the station and turned towards the lift. 
cresting the top, it turns around again and heads into the first drop, then a banked 180-degree turnaround. This was an overbank on twisted timbers. Hurler had new track here, and it was smooth enough. Next up are three larger hills, which were fine, but they were nothing like the sublime ejector airtime hills on timbers. Then there was another about face, some bunny hills, and another turn. This was where Twisted Timbers did that wonky outer bank going through the structure of the lift. Finally, it's one more bunny hill and a final turnaround before entering the brakes. We sat on the brake run for a considerable moment, and then the ride ops came over the PA and asked us to please be patient. It would be a few more minutes before we could disembark. I looked ahead and saw them hosing off and disinfecting the train in front of us before sending it out empty. Guess the hurler lived up to its name. I baked in the Carolina sun for longer than I would have liked, and we finally re-entered the station. As it currently stands, Hurler is simply not enjoyable. Cedar Fair has worked with both GCI and RMC in the past, and while their relationship with the latter is said to be a bit rocky, I would love to see either outfit come in and retrofit this coaster, or replace it with something more modern. Using some of the existing supports would give the park a lot of bang for the buck. By this point, I had ridden everything I wanted to in the park. The Nighthawk Flying Coaster was closed. As I record this, it hasn't been open all season. I guess they're waiting on a part because of the supply chain issues. I also didn't ride any of the kiddie or family coasters in the park because they all had super long lines, over 45 minutes, and when I could basically walk onto the major coasters, I wasn't about to wait in those kind of lines just to get the credits. I made a couple more laps around the park to get some more rides on the big four. Copperhead Strike continued to impress me. Sure, the launches are nothing to write home about, but this is a really fun ride. I loved the hang time in the first vertical loop and the cutback, and the airtime was nothing short of ejector in the front part of the train. It's a comfortable, smooth, easily re-rideable roller coaster that's completely unique in this park. I really like a looping coaster that also features airtime, and especially one that doesn't have over-the-shoulder restraints. Copperhead Strike is an example of this new style of roller coaster that I really enjoy. It's like Velocicoaster Light. It's not all about size and stats. It doesn't just do one thing like just loops or just airtime. It combines a myriad of different elements and experiences into one attraction, and it's something everyone can enjoy. I rode it four times that day, and I love this tangled little mess of track. I also rode both Intimidator and Afterburn four times each. When I talk about liking Copperhead Strike for its variety, I'm contrasting it with these two rides. Both are big and fun, but they have only a single focus, either airtime or inversions. Both accomplish their intended purposes flawlessly, but I'm starting to prefer roller coasters that have more variety in their layouts. Now let's get back to Fury. I was able to ride a total of five times that day. As I rode it more in different rows, I really came to appreciate the unique blend of elements on this ride. It's about way more than just straight airtime hills like Intimidator. That first drop is world-class. The ride has phenomenal speed, graceful turns that hug the ground, and strong floater bordering on ejector airtime in its last three hills. I can't praise that treble clef element enough. I love the feeling of descending into the tunnel while still banked hard to the right. In the back row, you're ripped downward in what is unequivocally ejector airtime, perhaps the only moment like that on a B&M I've ridden. I was able to get past the rattle. It was there, and once I accepted that, I could appreciate Fury for what it delivers, which is an unrelenting series of speedy turns, whippy transitions, and airtime. This roller coaster didn't wow me on my first ride, but as I rode it more, I really appreciated just how good the layout is. Perhaps Fury is more like a fine wine, or maybe a cordial, where it takes some time to get a true impression of all the flavor notes. In that way, this roller coaster delivered for me. It's not my number one, but it's definitely earned a spot in my top ten. And hey, I still have two more gigas coming up at my next two park visits on the trip, so it'll be really fun to put this ride up against the original giga, Millennium Force, and the baby of the family, Orion.
so I have a couple more notes about Carowinds before I wrap up. First, I have to give them a massive shout-out for operations. Lines on the major coasters were very short all day, yet they were still running the maximum available trains on every ride, and the operators were doing their best to get every train dispatched in short order. Something else I noticed is that the operators in the control booths were not the ones making the announcements over the PAs in each station. That responsibility was left to another team member who was working the platform and checking the restraints while giving instructions via wireless headsets. This allowed the people pressing the buttons in the control booths to focus on safety and allow the crew members to have some fun with the park guests and add some antics and funny commentary while doing their jobs. This really worked great and many of these ride ops with the microphones did a great job interacting with us. I also want to talk about lockers. Carowinds has a great locker system. It's similar to what SeaWorld and Busch Gardens have. You can pay $10 for the day for a small locker large enough to hold items like keys, wallets, and phones. They had locker kiosks near all the major rides, and you could move your rental freely from one location to the next as you go about your day. I really like this. None of the coasters required guests to ride with nothing in their pockets like VelociCoaster, but I personally preferred to have my valuables safe and secure while I was riding the coasters, so I didn't have to worry about my car keys digging into my thighs during airtime, or much worse, losing them on the ride. Carowinds also would not allow me to ride with my sunglasses on unless I had a neck strap for them, which I did not. I had never seen this before. I've ridden so many roller coasters with my sunglasses on and never had a problem. I hit up pretty much every gift shop in the park and they were all sold out of sunglass straps. We'll see if Cedar Point has the same policy. I spent about 10 hours in the park. I rode 9 different coasters and got a total of 22 rides in. Not a shabby first day. I wish Nighthawk had been open so I could have experienced my first flying Dutchman, but still I left the park happy and super excited for my next stop at Cedar Point. Overall, Carowinds had phenomenal operations and was in beautiful shape. It was clean and well laid out. I appreciated their announcements over the PA all day that complimentary water was available at any food and beverage location. In this kind of heat, staying hydrated is so important, and it's nice that the park provided this necessity. Carowinds has a good number of coasters, but they really only have four in that top tier that you're going to want to ride multiple times. The rest are pretty lackluster, but how many parks out there have four excellent coasters to re-ride all day? I think making some sort of improvement to Hurler would be a massive boon to the park. Unfortunately, I didn't get any night rides because the park closed at 10 and it didn't even get dark until about 9.30. I was exhausted well before then. I retired to my hotel back across the street. My mind was racing as I recounted the day. It was so much fun and I was only getting warmed up. As I scrolled through my socials, I learned that others had noticed Fury's rattle as well. Apparently new wheels were hard to come by because of the supply chain. Hopefully this improves in time. I would love to come back and ride this coaster running as smoothly as expected. I had a blast at Carowinds, and I still had three more outstanding parks to visit. The next day would be another travel day. I had 574 miles in front of me, which Google Maps put at just over nine hours of windshield time. I would be returning to America's roller coaster for the first time since 1999. Even though I had been there before, this was the park I was most looking forward to on the trip. Join me for the next episode when I head back to the coaster enthusiast Holy Grail none other than Cedar Point, next time on Coaster Redux. That's a wrap for this episode. If you enjoyed it, please help me out by reviewing, sharing, and subscribing. You can also follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Coaster Redux. Thank you for listening to Coaster Redux. Until next time, enjoy the ride.